Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 46. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the doctor on the show, Rob Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. How are you How doing? You doing? I'm, doing I'm doing great. Sweet Talking. jinx. Double jinx, man. That was creepy. We are using a new <laughs> version of our audio recording software called Zencaster, yes. and it's got a whole new interface. It's all weird, man. Don't it's, like it. Yeah, I know it is... Um, I don't like new. I don't like new and different. Yeah. I don't trust it. I mean, if it works, great. But for this first run, we're like, we're, we're flying blind here. Uh, yeah, we do a local recording. So we're not just hinging on Zencaster, though. It's our backup, and our local recording is the one we typically use to do an edit. So we're not crazy. We have backups, people. Sheesh, just cool. Calm down. <laughs> so you're learning anything cool this week? I have been diving very deeply into uh, spiritual gifts. Oh. Any spare moment I had, I've been trying to comb through that stuff while having family devotions. So I can say, yeah, I'm I'm learning some very good stuff. Cool. How about you? Um, well, now you trump me with the spiritual thing. Um, well, I came prepared. Well, you did. I'm reading a book for a small group at church called The Imperfect Disciple. And that is one of the best books about the Christian life I've read. I'm hit you between the eyes sort of good. Wow. It's not like a Christian self-help book that he talks about. This is raw. This is real. This is me. You know, I'm a pastor, but you know, I struggle with X, Y, and Z and PDQ, and you know, we're all messed up. And every single day, we wake up in Romans seven. This one, like the first first chapter, but you have to get into Romans eight in your head. Oh yeah, that's really good. Yeah, Romans seven. The you know, I'm nothing but a sinful person. I can't do anything right. I'm you know, blah 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 blah. And Romans eight is God saves us. Yeah, it's it's a good book. I'm really enjoying it. That's really interesting because while going through the spiritual gift thing, it is learning to be like Christ and the Christ likeness. And it is really easy as we are still humans. We carry our own nature and our perfectionistic tendencies to go right into it, trying to be perfect at it, being like Christ as well as we humanly can and do it in our own flesh. That's a very important message even when we're trying to Put on the armor of God. We want perfect armor. We don't want any soft armor and floppy armor and thin armor. We want the good stuff. Yeah, we want the, like the whole full Mandalorian set, not just the one piece at a time sort of thing. <laughs> yes, please give me the, the really good <laughs> stuff. The stuff that lightsabers can't penetrate. Crazy. All right, something amazing happened just a couple hours ago. Yeah. I was watching it. It was amazing. The Odyssey has landed on Mars. We have not really talked much about this. So but we talked about the launch briefly. Go into it. Tell me all about it. Well, this is the third human spacecraft to reach Mars in just a couple of weeks. The Chinese got one there. That's a lot of traffic on the one planet. Yeah. Yeah. The Chinese got one there. The United Arab Emirates has successfully gotten a thing to Mars. It's launched, of course, not on one of their own rockets, but they they have their own interplanetary space thing that is is orbiting Mars right now. Mm. Totally cool. I'm so happy for them. But ours, we have just trumped ourselves. The opportunity is a big, heavy thing, and we had to land it without smashing it. So how are we going to do that? Well, we did some aero braking first, and then they released some parachutes, which is always tricky because when you're traveling at supersonic speeds in a thin atmosphere, parachutes are tricky. But they successfully did that, and then they were in free fall for a little while, and then they turned on some retro rockets. You know, some moments of terror, they kept saying, a couple of minutes of terror. They literally did a sky crane thing and lowered the lander on cables from the descent module. Oh! Wow. And then it touched down, <laughs> the cables cool. attached, and the descent module flew away and kind of crash landed off to the side. <laughs> That's and, awesome. Well, if you think about it, though, these these rockets that prevented from smashing the ground, they'd never been fired. Wow. You don't yeah. test that rocket because, you know, you get a blade of things, things break, things, you know, you have to have a brand new, never been used rocket. And we launched that thing, flew it through space which is either blazing hot or freezing cold, depending on if you're in the sun or in the shadow, burned into the atmosphere of Mars, and then it fired. And it turned on right when it was supposed to. That's so cool. They landed in this crater that they were aiming for. So we aimed at a crater millions of miles away and hit the bullseye. <laughs> That's so good. Go science. What's really incredible is that this had never been really done before. This is new. And... 200 years ago, man would have never imagined 
that we would be doing this now. They hoped, they dreamed, they they imagined up stuff with rockets, but this is a first. Not just 200 years ago. Think about you know all the, the silly sci-fi movies of the 1950s or even sci-fi books in the late 1800s, early 1900s. People have imagined all sorts of really crazy things about Mars that are just totally wrong. Yeah, no, no appreciation or concept for the reality of what any of this would entail. There was a uh, an Edgar Allan Poe book that I read once. It was really gruesome, but it, it was written as a serial for a um, uh, for a newspaper. So every week, would a new chapter would come out, and of course, he always ended the chapter with something about, "Oh, what I gotta get the next chapter to keep newspapers being sold." And it was a a voyage to the South Pole. Like a voyage, not on land. They were sailing there. And once you made it past the ice, it started getting hotter and hotter and hotter, you see. <laughs> <laughs> what? At the, so the South Pole itself is supposed to be actually kind of like a, a tropical paradise. Well, no, no. Blazing hot. Oh. Like un- uncomfortable. You can't, can't live there kind of hot because, you know, no one had ever been there. So why not? So it's a twist, you see. It's not what you expected, was it? No, oh. you expected it to be cold. <laughs> right. Oh, clever. So something else happened in the world of science that is unbelievably amazing. Oh, yes. I submitted my paper today. Congratulations. Tell us all about it. Well, I've been working on this since about last March. I have worked harder on this than anything I've worked on since I worked on my doctoral dissertation. Wow. I doesn't, it, the thing is, it doesn't have a real point. And that's, it's a difficult thing to get this through. Mm. It's, it's a review and we're asking open-ended questions, and we're trying to say to the world that no one knows where the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus came from. And maybe you can't know, because the types of experiments being done in the laboratory for the past 20 years would produce exactly what we see. But similar things can happen in the wild. Mm. Ouch. So, we put it up on preprints, which is a preprint server. And now the there's a person, I saw her name, and I actually looked her up on this, this scholar website. So I, I think I know who this professor is and where she is in the world. And so she's in control of saying, yes, this can go on our website or not. And once it's there, it's a preprint server. It's it's not peer-reviewed yet. It's not you know published, but anyone can read it. And so it, it, it's a much lower bar to overcome, but I still have to overcome the evolutionary hurdles that they put out there. And so I think, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with the paper necessarily. Mm-hmm. And as long as, you know, she doesn't look too carefully, maybe she'll just post it. And then the online community will start commenting. And then we start shopping it around trying to get it published in a journal. So why would it present any flags to them about an evolutionary worldview or the lack thereof? Is that an angle that any scientific paper is expected to not just be founded upon, but also extol and preach about? Any science textbook that you used in college and probably high school, but any science college textbook, the first page was a, how do you pronounce that? Paean? P-A-A-E-N? Oh, yeah. Whatever. It was a, it was a, a homage to evolution. Okay. Hail evolution. We who are about to die salute you. May you live forever. Yeah. P-A-E-A-N. It's a word I've read a thousand times. I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I've never actually heard someone say it. <laughs> but I just Googled it. It's a joyous song or hymn of praise, tribute, thanksgiving, or triumph. Wow. Anyway, so basically the first page of any college science book is going to have an ode to joy for evolution. <laughs> Even if the rest of the book never mentions the word once. Well, you could have written a paragraph that was a little tongue-in-cheek. I could have, but no, we. it doesn't have to be that way. But at a lot of scientific papers have things like that at the very beginning. Just like, yeah, I'm one of you. I'm one of the club. Not all of them. And if, you, if people know you're in the club, you don't have to do that. But we didn't. But that's not really what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is that we didn't follow the status quo because right now the WHO just said, you know, this thing is, comes from nature. That's it. For real? Yeah, they just said they had a big, big pronouncement. They had this big investigation. These people over in China and they did all the stuff. And they said, "There's, you know, this this is clearly naturally derived." And our paper is. So you think that the evidence doesn't support that notion? And are they presenting evidence to support their notion? Yeah, and I disagree with it. Okay, but no, my 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 paper does not present evidence that it's either way. It'd be because it'd be really bad news for all of us if they were just saying this is the way it is, y'all, and they were not presenting their evidence for their case. Oh, but that's been the way since the beginning. That the major cited papers on this are closing ranks. We're the experts here. 
and it's been very frustrating as a, a peon, not a pain, but a peon in the uh, scientific community to be reading these pontifications from on high. Still, you're very brave, Rob, and we are all rooting for you. Thank you. So last when we were talking about this, you said that you were trying to get another co-author mm-hmm. on the paper. And we have. Yes, yes, yes. We have a virologist on our, our author list. I'm very happy about this. He's also a brother. I've actually interviewed him in Creation Magazine. Oh, okay. <clears throat> but he's a, a real official virologist. And so this paper on viruses uh, is making a very important contribution. Excellent. Where does it go from here? Does it, you know, is it most likely to be approved and processed in a week or are we talking two months? Uh, no, I think it'll be approved and online tomorrow, next week at the latest. Will it ever go in a journal? I don't know if it will because like, you know, 60,000 COVID-19 papers have been put on preprint servers over the last six months. Uh, you know, most of those are never going to get printed. Well, most of them weren't as well written as anything that you would put together. Well, mine, yeah, it's like 11,000 words, I think. Yeah. It's 30 pages. That sounds like your magnum opus. It, it, it was an awful lot of work. And plus the 27,000 SARS-CoV-2 genomes that I aligned, which took probably you know, three weeks of my life spread out over a couple of months, but it's done. I remember doing a big project once that from beginning to end, it was nothing that scientific, but it took place over 13 months and I was tracking all my time. So then- when the 13 months were over, my boss asked, what have you been doing for 13 months? And I had been tracking all my time and all my assignments. And then I was able to say, well, you know, I actually spent all this other time on other projects. And the big one that we worked on for 13 months was only three months worth of work. <laughs> wow. But it was three solid months. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you've been cramming. I know you've been working really hard on that, Rob. Yeah. Very excited that you can, can you, can you get a little downtime? Can you relax a little bit? Or is there something else hot in the skillet? Uh, no, no, but I don't, I don't want to stare at a computer screen for weeks on end anymore. I, I need to get outside and hike and <laughs> think of other things. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to try to shift gears. It's going to be hard to shift gears, but I'm going to try to. And plus, I've got a lot of writing assignments uh, for my main employer that they're itching for me to write. I mean, books and articles and books. And I, I, I want to get cracking on that. I just I want to change the pace. Yeah, and we've got our bees just around the corner. Yes. That'll be a nice change of pace. Yes. I can't wait. So, Rob, I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce this one. Okay. Well, do we have a title? I, I want to go with How Eyes Work. How Eyes Work? Well, you, you want to introduce a suggestion? Do you have a, can you think of a better title? No, I opened a title up there. I said, The Eyes Have It with question mark or Ocular Oddities with the question mark. But, you know. No, no, both of those are pretty good. How how our eyes work or just how eyes work? Well, that is really boring. So let's go back to the eyes have it. All right. The eyes have it. Yes, I want to talk about how eyes work, <laughs> how we see, how when you look at the world, do you detect objects? I mean, it's, it's not nuts. It's crazy. The chemistry of this, the biology of it, the physiology of it, the, the geometry of it, the neurons processing and then sending information to the brain. This is unbelievably cool and fun and fascinating and it's an incredibly important part of our world see on that note this really is mind-blowing to me because i was thinking about our senses yes and you know when you you think about touch you know you've got some skin it's sensitive to the feeling of things but it's not terribly complex compared to something like the eye so my mind can almost wrap around the science of human skin, all creatures being able to feel things. Okay. I can, um, I can kind of imagine the science that explains how we have the sensation of touch that the brain is able to gather and process. And is, that is an, a primitive technology compared to an eyeball. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely primitive. It's the sense of smell and taste and hearing and, and sight that just blow me away. But the eyes have probably got to be number one. Yeah, absolutely the most complicated, bar none. Because hearing, you have a directionality to it, but it's really just left and right. And taste is just one. It's a one-dimensional thing. It tastes or not tastes. But eyes are a two-dimensional projection of a three-dimensional field that's changing in the fourth dimension in color (laughs) and high def. (laughs) (laughs) All the time, a thousand K. This has a very interesting uh, scientific... Uh, history to it. I mean, all the way back to Charles Darwin, who wrote about 
the origin or the evolution of a vision. And he started off with, imagine a light-sensitive spot. And then he had that light-sensitive spot form, you know, bend around into a cup shape. And then a lens develop on top of it. And then all of a sudden you went from a, a flat, you know, I could detect light or not, to being able to actually have clear vision. And it was an interesting idea. But the thing is, and this is where we want to start. I want to start off with the biochemistry of vision, because this is more complicated than any other part of vision. Darwin essentially started with a miracle. What, really? A chemistry miracle. Light destroys biological molecules. Oh, interesting. In fact, the biological molecules that destroy light are that detect light are destroyed in our eyeballs. One photon and that object is ruined. It has to be remade. We'll get to that in a second. Shoot. Okay. And plus, with visible light comes ultraviolet light. You can't separate that. I mean, the early primitive organisms that you know people imagine were evolving, they didn't know that there was this thing called ultraviolet light that was frying them. <laughs> no. Or if that made if they made some sort of an eye spot, the ultraviolet light would just destroy any biological light detecting molecule they could produce because they're all light labile to ultraviolet, but they're also destroyed by visible light. Hmm. Speaking of which, are you going to explain what ultraviolet light is later? Yeah, sure. In a second. Okay, pl please do when you get there. But detecting photons is like a molecule trying to capture a cannonball. <laughs> These photons <laughs> okay. will rip the molecules apart. And that's a mystery. So we can detect what we call visible light. We have low energy, long wavelength red light. Has a wavelength about 700, 780 nanometers. And we can detect all the way up to very short wave, very high power per photon, purplish light. Huh. That's about 400 nanometers. When you get longer than 700, you get into the uh, microwaves and then radio waves. Oh, okay. When you get shorter than 400, you get into the ultraviolet. And you have ultraviolet A, which is like a black light, not very dangerous at all. Ultraviolet B, which is kind of pushing a little bit, but then ultraviolet C is the stuff that gives you cancer. <laughs> okay. Because it rips apart DNA molecules. Oh, goodness. That are inside your skin. Yeah. So we have to avoid that. And you don't want super high intensity infrared because then you cook. But there's a sweet spot, this very, very, very narrow band of light that we detect with the photo detectors in our eyes. I've heard people say that hypothetically, there are a whole lot more colors, but our eyes cannot detect them. Is that true? Um, yes and yes, but no. A radio wave is a color. The visible spectrum, it's just a continuum all the way up to radio waves. We can't see radio waves because we don't have anything in biology that could ever detect them. You need a metal post that's tuned to that frequency exactly to be able to detect a radio wave. Hmm. And biology can't do that. So are there other creatures that can see a little bit more of the spectrum then? Oh, yes. Birds and insects specifically can often see into the ultraviolet. They have an extra color detector that detects light that's invisible to us. Wow. So do they just see that as like part of their regular color spectrum or is it like another? Yeah, it would just look normal to them. So when a bee looks at a flower, it might see a stripe that we can't see. Wow. And there's some vision things happening with bees and flowers that help them get to where they want to go. And we're completely oblivious to them until we invented ultraviolet cameras. Wow. And birds too. Birds can see into the ultraviolets. A lot of birds, not all of them. And I think um, maybe octopus, maybe not. Some, some marine creatures can do it, but there's not much ultraviolet in the ocean, only on the very surface of the ocean. Oh. So if I asked you what the three primary colors are, what would you say? Oh, I know because I'm a video guy. Well, or should I say a cre creative professional? Yes, right. But if you were in art class, if you were in art class in middle school, what would they tell you? RGB, uh, red, green, and blue. They would not tell you that. Really? They would say cyan, magenta, and yellow. What? What happens when you mix blue paint and yellow paint together? You get green paint. Red, blue, and yellow. Red, but blue, if you mix blue light and red light together, you get green light. Hmm. The primary colors of light are the secondary colors of paint, and the secondary colors of paint are the primary colors of light. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I have thought about that. It, well, it, it, it takes your brain a little while to wrap around this, but it's because when you're adding light, you're adding photons. When you're adding paints, you're subtracting photons. Paints absorb. Light is the opposite of absorption. So when we look at something, what we see is the lack of the wavelengths of white light. 
some of those wavelengths are being absorbed. When we shine colored lights on something, we see, like if you shine colored light on a white page, you'd see the color of the light. If you shine yellow light on a black object, that black object absorbs all the yellow. If you if you look in the notes and you scroll down a little bit, mm-hmm. below the second picture that I included there, there's I love doing this in physics class when I was teaching physics because all the kids are like, what? If you shine red and green light together, it makes yellow. Right. If you shine red and blue light together, you get magenta. That one would seem more obvious than the green and red. Yeah, green and red's weird. That's a totally different color. But if you shine green and blue light together, you get cyan. And that one is not super duper popular, it's not. but as a graphic designer, I totally get it. Yes. We have a picture of a rainbow, and superimposed on the rainbow are three peaks, one peaking in the blue, one peaking in the green, and one peaking in the yellow-red. That is the three primary peaks of absorption of the color receptors in our eyeballs. But they're not specific to one exact wavelength. They like the blue receptor might be highest in blue, but it also detects purple. It also detects cyan, and it detects a little bit of green too, which is why when you're red, green, colorblind, you're not completely blind. It's not like you see black for those colors because your other photoreceptors can detect those colors not quite as well, but you can still see them. Mm-hmm. And because the green and the blue overlap in a cyan color, like a teal, turquoisey sort of middle between green and blue, when you shine green and blue light together, it makes the cyan color. But what's funny is if you shine light of about 500 nanometers, it's cyan. So you can trick your eyeballs. If you shined light about 450 nanometers and 550 nanometers, the average of that is 500 nanometers. It's going to look blue. But if you didn't have those two colors of light and you only had 500 nanometer light, it's going to look the same color. If you want to follow along, maybe I can throw this into the chapter art so you can see it. Oh, yeah. Something like that would be cool. Yeah, yeah. The point is we have three different color receptors in our eyeballs. Their absorption bands overlap. So when you see something, when you see a color, it's actually usually stimulating two different... Adjacent colors. Uh, two different photoreceptors. And one of them is stimulated more than the other. Oh. So your brain says, oh, when I'm stimulated this much with this color receptor and this much with the other color receptor, I'm detecting, I'm going to call that yellow. And your brain knows the relative intensities of different things that are close together. And then it add, your eye adds them together. It's really popular on computer displays to quantify the spec sheet in millions of colors. Yeah. Are we technically able to see millions of colors or are we seeing more than millions of colors? You know, how does that work? Would you say that all together we see millions of colors? Well, I just Googled how many colors can humans see? And the answer Google gave me or Wikipedia gave me is 10 million. Okay. That is a lot of variance. Yeah, there's only three detectors, and those three <laughs> wow. detectors can discriminate 10 million different colors. That See, that's insane. That is amazing. It, oh. It's an example of over-design. Mm-hmm. There's no reason at all we need to detect that. In fact, men don't even have that many names. You know, we have like five colors for five names for colors, and that's it. Well, you don't need more than that. That's red. That's green. Okay, maybe you have a purple and there's a blue, there's a yellow, mm-hmm. but we don't have aquamarine and fuchsia in our vocabularies. This is not something a man ever says unless no. you know, he's got sisters like I have sisters, so I learned all these silly things. That means girls see more colors, right? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. It might be psychological. It might be cultural. I don't know. They don't detect more colors. They might be more sensitive to shades of color, but maybe that's training. See, I think it is more training. It's popularity. There was an example that uh, I remember studying during graphic design education stuff, that there is a country in Africa, forget the country, it's been a while, but they use a considerable amount of green. It's very popular in their cultural goods, what they like to make. Okay. And they use greens in their flag. And it was pointed out that so some people studying the culture said, wait a minute, they seem to know by name a very good variety of different shades of green. They you know, ran a poll, a survey, they showed them various swatches of green, and they were able to name, on average, the average citizen could name over 36 varieties of green. Wow. And if you were to show those to Americans, they would just say green is green most of the time. 
Unless they've seen The Devil Wears Prada. Ha ha ha. Yes. It's like Eskimos have like 30 different words for snow. I don't remember what the number was, but they have a huge number of words for different types of snow. We have like three. Of course they do. We have snow. We have sleet. Big flakes and little flakes. We don't have words for those things. Right. <laughs> Sludge. Ice. We got muck. We got brown snow. Well, according to the Smithsonian.com, in the middle range of the spectrum, women are better at distinguishing subtle differences between mainly yellows and greens oh. that may look might look identical to men. So maybe they do see different colors than we do. That's a very interesting question, and I hadn't anticipated that, so I hadn't looked it up before you asked it. So, hmm. Well, just a couple of days ago, my wife got some f- fresh bananas, and she asked me if I wanted one, and I took a look, one lo- look at them, and I thought, well, they're not quite ripe. She said, oh, really? They look ripe to me. But bananas are going from green to yellow. So maybe her appreciation. Yeah, but some people like them leopard spotted and some people like them green. And so she might have just been saying, this is the level of green I prefer. Yeah, that's true. Could be. Okay. You want to hear Carter's secrets to bananas? On bananas? This is, I, I can keep bananas perfect for about a week. And it's easy. What? Well, you have them sitting on your counter until they're... Just just slightly more green than you like them. Just slightly. Okay. And then put them in the refrigerator. Oh. Now, the skins might blacken, but the meat will stay fresh for a lot longer than you think. But then when you're ready for your banana, you take it out, it's still going to be a little bit green. So you cut off the ends and put it in the microwave for 10 seconds. What? That little bit of warmth sweetens it up. Boom. Woo. I'm going to have to try this. It's, you're not going to hot banana. It's, it's going to be a you know, room temperature banana. But all you got to do is warm it up a little bit and it'll instantly ripen to your desired ripeness. Now, there's a limit. It, it doesn't last forever, but I, I love doing that. Bananas tend to give me indigestion, strangely. So I never eat them on an empty stomach anymore. Apples do that to me. Really? I eat apples all the time. I have to be careful. That's strange. Anyway, that's my, uh, my secret to banana ripening and eating yummy bananas all day long. You learn to hear first, people. Okay, back on topic. Mm -hmm. How do we detect photons? The human eye can literally detect a single photon. One. And the brain can say, boop, I saw a photon. What? (laughs) How, How does that work? Well, we need vitamin A in our diets. Without vitamin A, you go blind. Vitamin A is cleaved in half. A couple changes are made to it, and you get an a molecule called 11 cis retinol. Retinal, not retinol. That's a different thing, but 11 cis retinal is a molecule that we see with. It's a cool molecule. It's got a ring and it's got a, a long, stiff chain of carbon sticking out. Like, you ever, you ever take a tape measure and you extend it yeah. until it goes bang and it breaks? Yes. Well, the one inch wide tape measures go a lot longer before they break, but then the thin tape measures, right? Right, right, of course. I think my dad was involved in inventing the one inch wide tape measure. Ooh. Yeah, I got to ask them this, this. I used to work in a factory, this tape measure factory, like on college breaks and summers in, a, in a, a, one big power press going stamp, 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 stamp. And I worked in the shipping and it was fun. I, I, I really enjoyed it because it wasn't like permanent. I knew I was going to college and I didn't have to work there the rest of my life, but that's beside the point. Yeah, anyway, okay. It's like this molecule is like one of those tape measures. It's got a long, straight, stiff tail of nine carbons. And every other carbon is linked to the other carbon with a double bond. If it was single bonds, it would be floppy. You could you can spin around a single bond, but you can't spin around a double bond. It locks the molecule in place. So it's a, a circle like a sugar. It's a six-carbon circle. And then a nine-carbon tail that's really stiff. That is retinal. Like It's usually the third double bond. And twist it around and make a kink. That is 11 cis retinal. That is the molecule that detects light. When light hits it, it unkinks it. When visible light hits it, it unkinks it. And now it's ruined. But when it unkinks, it links up to, I think, a lysine, amino acid, and something else. And something else happens over here and over here and over here. And it's all these chemical changes that happen that leads to calcium being pumped out of the photodetector. And calcium is a trigger for a nerve, a nerve signal. Oh, yeah. Huh. And, and now the nerve is like, oh, I've been stimulated by this calcium pulse. And it sends an electrical signal eventually to the brain. We'll get to how that happens at, at the end, I think. But this really cool molecule... 
it grabs a photon, but it doesn't grab the whole photon because a photon is powerful enough to destroy the molecule. It only grabs some of the energy, like a fraction of a percent of the energy of that photon. And the rest of the photon is lost as heat. So we have a heat problem. Your eyeballs are generating heat from the photons. Well, if you take that long, straight, stiff molecule and bend it in slightly different ways, you get the red, the green, and the blue photodetectors. So it's one chemical that just twisted around here or there or there, and it will slightly change the wavelength of light that it will detect. That's amazing. Whew. And this is why different animals can detect different wavelengths of light. It's because they have different changes in those that molecule. And this is why it is rumored that some, specifically women, have the ability to, to detect more colors because they might have a fourth color receptor. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Um, I have another one for another day, I guess. So do they not know for a fact? I think they do, but I read this a couple of years ago and I don't remember what the answer was. Oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so I have to go down and Google again, look it up to, to make myself look smart. But I just <laughs> I just forgot. It's just something that popped in my brain. Like, hey, Rob, you remember that. I, you read that a couple of years ago. What was the answer? Oh, fail. Okay. Well, they have a backup and we don't. Your eyeball can work when it's hit by a single photon. It can also work when you're hit by 100 million photons. That's eight orders of magnitude <laughs> difference in brightness. Oh, wow. Can you imagine a camera that can work across a factor of 100 million in brightness? Seeing as how I know a lot about video, no. No. Because they're so basic compared to, to an eyeball. It, it, there's, yeah. They're not on the same wavelength. If you want to detect very low light, you need a different camera. Yeah. If you want to detect medium light, you take a regular camera and you put a, a, a lens in front of it for bright light because the, the photo detector is really primitive and it can only take so much change in brightness before it stops working like you want it to. But our eyeballs do it and they do it multiple ways. One is we have a pupil which contracts in bright light and opens up in dim light. Two, we have um, nerves that say, you know, that's enough light for now. I'm just going to slow down. And three, we have photosaturation of the, uh, the photo detectors. They get tired. They just can't produce. Because every time one of those molecules detects a photon, it's ruined. Oh, yeah. It has to be exported out of the photo detector cell. It has to be oxidized. It has to be changed with a whole bunch of different chemical reactions before it's reset. And then it has to be imported back into the cell again. This takes minutes. And so your, your ability to continually say, I see blue, 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 your eyes just slow down. So hence all those tricks where you stare at something yeah. and then look at the right wall. Yes. Like you stare at a, a blue five and then you see a green five on the wall or whatever, color, I, don't, I don't remember, whatever those colors are. What it is is <laughs> that photo detector has gotten tired of seeing green or blue or whatever the color you're looking at. And when you look at a white wall, you should be seeing white, but the things that were seeing green aren't seeing much green. And so you see a different color in the middle. Oh. There's actually less green there than there really is. You, could, you don't notice it. Yeah. I mean, you can't see it because your eyeballs aren't seeing it even though it's there. Cool. Very. And we have different types of detectors in our eyeball. So we, we know we have three color detectors and there's a different cell. One cell for red, one cell for green, one cell for blue. But there are other cells that detect black and white. They're light sensitive. So gray, shades of gray, these are things called rods. Cones are color, rods are black and white. But rods get saturated very quickly. In other words, they work really good in moonlight, they work really good in the mornings, but at noon, all the colors wash out. Or sorry, all the, all the shadows wash out. You can't detect shades of shadow on bright light. It, they just disappear. But later on in the day or at nighttime, you can really see a lot. In fact, I love it when, um, when you turn off the light and it's pitch black and you're laying in bed for a while and all of a sudden you realize you can see everything Yeah, because your eyes get, I don't, know, I don't remember, what 16,000 times. What is that number I learned so long ago? I should have done more research for this. I didn't realize all these questions were going to pop up. All these things I remember vaguely that I didn't think to look up before the show to double check, but it's something like like many thousands of times more sensitive to light after you haven't been seeing light for a while. You adjust to it and it takes minutes to hours, which is why when you're camping and you want to look at, you know, darkness around you, you never look at the fire because that ruins your night vision. 
This is why they used red light bulbs on submarines when they were in battle conditions because red supposedly didn't ruin your night vision. This is why, well, another reason why, when you look at stars, you cannot see a dim star if you look directly at it. They disappear. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I remember exp- experiencing this years ago and I had just forgotten. I like in my in the day-to-day life, I just when I look at a star now, I don't like stare at it anymore. Yeah, and the reason for that is that in the center of your eye, the place called the fovea, where we have the greatest visual acuity, that area is packed with cones. There are hardly any rods there. And so you can't detect faint light with your cones. If you look just slightly off center at that star, you can see it. If you look directly at it, it just it just disappears. It's crazy. That is really neat. Let's talk about the optics a little bit. Oh yes, the, the that is the stuff that all of this is complex, but this sounds like the easier part to understand. Oh, definitely the easy part. This is definitely the easier part. Maybe you can help me with one thing. Okay. The lens expands, it moves back and forth or like, you know, widens. Does that mean that the eyeball's lens actually changes shape? Yep. Because that was something that I don't remember hearing before. Yep. And I thought about it a few years ago and thought, well, I don't know, but I'm betting it does. The muscles pull on the lens and when they pull tight, it flattens the lens. And when they relax, the lens gets fatter in the middle. So unlike a camera where the lens moves away, gets closer, our lenses don't move. They change shape. They morph. That's so cool. But the weirdest thing about the uh, any, any lens, you pass light through a lens, it flips upside down. Upside down and backwards. And so we actually see upside down and backwards. <laughs> two, with two lenses, you can, you can fix it. But with one lens, there's nothing you can do. Back in, the, I think, the 50s, some people invented some upside down glasses where it would flip what you see upside down. And people wore them for weeks on end. And after a while, the brain relearned how to, well, brain learned how to see upside down. Everything got straight again. And it looked normal, even though theoretically the light in their eyeball was, was flipped over. But then when you take the glasses off, they're looking normally and everything is upside down. And it took them a while for their eyes to readjust to normal, normal life again. <laughs> Weirdness. Well, we have this thing called um, myopia and presbyopia. Some people are farsighted. Some people are nearsighted. Why is that? You, will, you ever see a skull? And there's, there's holes for the eyeballs in the skull, right? Yes, of course. If those aren't perfectly round, if they're a little bit squished top to bottom, side to side, your eyeball is going to be longer. It's not going to be spherical anymore. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be extended. Yeah. Well, that's going to make you farsighted. Oh, okay. If, you're, if your eye sockets are uh, shaped a different way, your eyeball is going to be shorter front to back than it is top to bottom or side to side. That's going to make you nearsighted. Huh. So I am farsighted. I did not know this growing up. Oh. All I knew is that I couldn't catch a fly ball. I could catch a line drive, no problem. I couldn't catch a fly ball because it would disappear when I got, you know, I'm looking at it far away, no problem. I got about 10 feet over my head and it vanished. It hit my glove, I was lucky. (laughs) At the plate, I would just be sitting there like, yeah, just throw it low into the outside, low into the outside. And if that pitcher threw it low into the outside... I had almost 100% RBA or, or whatever. I would hit the ball and it would go into right field almost every time. If it went across the plate, I was lucky to hit it because I couldn't yep, see it. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I did not know this until I was in college and I had some reading glasses and I forgot to take them off one day and my friend and I were, were playing catch and he threw this ball at me and hit my glove and I realized that was the first time in my life I'd ever seen the ball hit the glove. <laughs> and I was just staring at it like, oh, I could have played baseball if I had glasses. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I just didn't know. Ah. So <laughs> eyeball geometry is cool. We have a cornea that covers everything, protects it. Cornea. And then we have some gooey stuff. And then we have a lens. And we have an iris, which opens and closes, just like on a camera. And then we have... This vitreous material, this gooey, thick stuff with lots of proteins in it, which is the the stuff that is inside the eye that the light goes through. On the back of the eye is something called the retina. The retina is where all the light detecting goes. That That is composed of a whole bunch of nerves, plus all the rods and cones. In the back of the retina, there's a very dense blood supply because your eyeball needs a lot of oxygen and a lot of sugars. But the way it's wired in the humans and mammals, the wiring is backwards. 
And this is called a lot, caused a lot of evolutions to say, see that? If God designed the eye, he would have done it forward, not backwards. Your God is an idiot. This is evolution. You see, evolution doesn't ever do anything precisely because the rods and the cones are behind all the nerves. The light has to go through a whole bunch of cells before it can be detected. Why would you do that? You lose visual acuity. Plus, because all the nerves are on the front side, they have to pass through and there's a spot we call a blind spot. The part where the optic nerve forms and goes through to the brain, there's no photodetectors there. Huh. You literally have a blind spot in each eye. Wow. Those are those tricks that you can do. Where you, can, you put two dots on a, on a page and you stare at one of them and the other one will disappear if they're the right distance apart. Because yeah. your brain pretends like there's not a blind spot. It literally fills in that area with whatever surrounds it and you can't notice it. And plus, your eyeballs can't sit still. Try as you might, you cannot stare at one thing without your eyeballs wiggling. They're called saccades. They, they leap, they jump. One reason for that is it prevents a single spot from becoming photosaturated. Different cells will be looking at the same object over time as your eyes wiggle. You don't notice it because your brain kind of takes out the, the, uh, the motion and then it blurs out the blind spot. <laughs> what? There's photo processing happening? Yeah, there's lots of photo processing happening. And so this, this whole idea that the, the eyeballs wired backwards was a big deal for evolutionists for, for decades until we realized a couple things. First of all, the eyeball requires a lot of blood and all the photo detectors are right next to the blood. Hmm. If it was the other way around, they wouldn't have the sugars or the oxygen or the other things that they need easily. That, that stuff would have to be moving through the nerve cells. Hmm. Well, the most important part is detecting the light it's an efficiency thing. It makes it a lot more yeah. efficient to have your your source next to your sink. Right. Instead of flipped around your source and they have to transport the stuff. So, But there's something else. And this wasn't learned until, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago. There are cells that no one realized what they are. They're called Muller cells. We've known about them, but it wasn't until some scientists started really studying them, we realized they are fiber optic cells. So did the, the name Muller cells come about before we knew what they did? Yes, Mr. Muller, probably, I'm, I'm guessing 1800s because a lot of this work was done way back when. Their cells, are, they're shaped like an hourglass. They're wide on top, skinny in the middle, and wide at the bottom. But they're fiber optic. What they do is they capture light, channel it down, pass through the nerves, and then open up again. And right underneath them is a photo detector. I'm looking at a picture of one. Is this a picture or like some kind of... It's it's a model. Okay. I, I think it's... I've always thought it was plastic. I've seen this picture for years. It resembles plastic, but it's fascinating. Yeah. It's, a, it's an yeah. interesting, intricate thing. It's a light pipe. Mm. And it takes the light through all the stuff that would mess up the image. Dude. It goes right through all the nerves. It also gets rid of stray light. It helps columnize things. It, it helps visual clarity helps a lot. In fact, okay, I don't have this on, on, the, um, on the outline, but I want to talk about insect eyes. Oh, please do. Because <laughs> they we, we think ours are amazing. It makes ours look, I don't know, not inferior, but definitely strategically different. And theirs are fascinating. When you look at insect eye, it's got you know, thousands of facets. Yeah. And each one of those is a long tube. There's a fixed lens at the top, a long tube, and some photodetectors at the bottom. And so invariably, in science fiction and fantasy, when you see, you know, you're looking through the eyes of the insect, what do you see? What do they show you? Well, you see like the hexagon or the octagon patterns at the top, but when you see the cross sections, yeah, you see those tubes. No, no, no. I mean, in sci-fi, when you're, they're pretending that an insect is looking at something, what do they show you? Oh, you see the reflection of what it's looking at on all of those little eyes it has. Yeah, like like Shelob's looking at Frodo, right? And so you see 50 Frodo's. Yes. Yeah, that is nonsense. That is so stupid. It makes me mad every time I see it. It's like, you morons, you guys in Hollywood, don't you have a brain? Sorry, sorry. <clears throat> I'll calm down now. <laughs> Artistic license. Well, yeah, but it's so bad. It has, And the reason is that long straight tube means it can only look in one particular direction. 
And having a whole bunch of tubes arrayed in a circular fashion or curved circular fashion, one tube is looking at one angle, another tube is looking at a different angle. They don't see the same thing. There's no overlap or very little overlap in the visual field of each tube. It's like a pixel. It's not like a complete image that each one sees. Right. And so insects are really good at like um, detecting a moving thing because it goes from one photo detector to another to another. It goes bing, 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 in series. Oh, okay. Yeah, try to catch a dragonfly. Try to catch a housefly. Yeah, good luck. Because they have this this instant, you know, this color or shape or whatever it is is moving across my visual field. And they're like, boom, I know there's something coming at me. And they fly away. Yeah, okay. So now I'm going to back down off my hobby horse here. <laughs> I'm going to talk about humans and other animals like that. Not animals like insects, but animals like mammals. And they have these things that are light pipes that bring that light through to the photo detectors. And that takes the whole backward eye argument and eviscerates it. They're backwards for very good engineering purposes, and the problems inherent in the backwards design were overcome with additional engineering. They are exquisitely designed, way beyond anything you would expect from random chance. Mm. So thinking about the animal world, there are a lot of different eyeballs, aren't there? Yep. One of my favorite things to follow on Instagram are nature photographers. Oh, yeah. Find some good ones that like to do close-ups. Yeah. They really enjoy showing off intricate eyes. Yeah, like goat eyes. Being a creepy one are zoomed up. <laughs> I don't know if thing. I need to look at any goat eyes, but... <laughs> well, there are things with very simple light spots, and they can take light and dark, basically. And then there are things like eagles. But there's not everything in between, because some geometries are impossible. They don't focus a good image. They don't make anything useful to the organism. They're too complex to create with very little benefit i mean for a simple organism detecting light and dark is critical hide in the shadow or if a shadow comes across you oh something's coming you can go hide you don't really need an image you just need to know if it's bright or dark and if how fast it's changing that is the greatest advantage after that visual acuity is important but there's all sorts of ways to mess up an eyeball so it won't work if that lens isn't the right distance away, if you don't have the right array of photo detectors, if your cup isn't shaped just right at the right distance, and, and on and on and on, there's all sorts of things in between that, that fail. And so the evolution of the eyeball is not without difficulty. And yet the geometry of it is the easy part. <laughs> the chemistry of it is the hard part. So I don't care if Darwin started with his light-sensitive spot and imagine all this geometry changing over time. First of all, that's not realistic but it's a lot easier to do than the chemistry we just talked about. But some animals can detect light without any eyeballs, like corals that we talked about several episodes ago. I was on a research trip to the Bahamas for a whole month. Remote island, no street lights, no cars, pitch black at night. We did a lot of night diving, do studying corals all day long. And one of my, one of my friends was there and he had this really interesting experiment where he had these corals in a fish tank. And he was shining a laser across the surface of the coral. And he had a light detector on the other side. And he showed that the coral tentacles responded to moonlight. Wow. When the moon passed behind a cloud, the tentacles would expand more. When it came out from the cloud, the tentacles would suddenly pull in. Corals have no eyeballs. And they respond dynamically to light. Wow. Hence maybe explaining why they know when it's three hours after the sunset during the full moon in August for spawning purposes and things like that. But they have very subtly and very you know, carefully detecting light, and we're not quite sure why. We did figure out one organism, the brittle star. It was really weird because they don't have any eyeballs, but we knew for a long time that they could detect light and dark. Like, how do they do that? Well, like the, the middle of a starfish, there's a ring-shaped nerve, and then branching nerves go down each arm. That's a standard starfish nervous system. But in brittle stars, they have these little things called ossicles. They're like little clear sort of bones and they're concentrated at the end of their arms but they're also everywhere else what we realize is right underneath the ossicle is a nerve the ossicles are detecting light and so a brittle star can stick his arm out and know if it's dark or not in that area so they can go towards light or towards dark hide or not hide because their entire body is an eyeball could you imagine being able to detect light with your feet no <laughs> well you can sunlight because it's warm okay well, the, it's the warmth. It's not really the, the, the light per se. Yeah, but you could... Oh, this is really cool. I just realized that. If you're laying out on at a picnic and you're laying on a blanket, right? 
Mm-hmm. And the sun is changing and the, the shadow of a tree is coming across you. You know what part of your body is in the sunlight and what part of you is in the shade. Mm-hmm. Oh, so we're just like brittle stars. <laughs> <laughs> but because infrared is absorbed so quickly in water, brittle stars never feel heat from the sun. So they just detect light and dark. Oh, that's cool. I, that's, I like that. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Nice. Now let's talk about your field a little bit. Image processing. If, you, if I was to ask you to describe how the eye works, you would probably say something like, well, you got a bunch of photo detectors and a bunch of nerves. And a photo detector says, oh, I see red and puts out on a nerve and the nerve goes to the brain. Your brain makes an image of what you're seeing. You would think, yeah. That is not at all what happens. Your eyeballs are computers. Octopus eyeballs are not like that. Octopus eyeballs have pretty much a direct connection. But our eyeballs do a massive amount of image processing. When you like, if you shut your eyes and open your eyes and shut them again, yes. If you do it really quickly, you see like a, a silhouette of things. Yes, because the first thing your eyes do is it makes a wireframe image of what you're seeing. Oh, that is so cool! I hadn't thought of it that way, but now that I'm doing it, it it finds areas of high contrast. Yes, and there's a line there, and it will make a line. But the weird thing is, it does vertical lines more than horizontal lines. Have you ever been frustrated trying to hang a picture because you can't get it horizontal? Oh, yeah. Crooked pictures all the time. That's because your eyeballs are really bad at horizontal, but they're really good at vertical. Hmm. Now, I learned this in genetics, amplifying DNA and running out the DNA on a gel. On one, usually on the right-hand side, the right-hand well, we'd put a DNA ladder. So DNA of 100 base pairs, 200, 300, 400, 500, 1,000, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 10,000. We'd have a ladder of DNA, and as you ran it in the gel, put electricity in the gel, the DNA would migrate, and the smaller piece would go faster than the, the bigger pieces. And so you had the ladder on one side, and you put all your DNA in these other wells, and they'd grow out parallel to the ladder. And then you say, oh, how long is this piece? And you look at it, and you try to look sideways at your ladder. Oh, it's a 200. Uh, no, it's a 300? Uh, and you couldn't do it. Even though the thing's only a couple inches wide, you could not horizontally line it up. But if you turned it sideways, and you looked at it vertically, Boom, you instantly knew how your line matched up with the line from the ladder because you're really good at vertical and really bad at horizontal. And I think that has something to do with the way our eyes see. And we, I, I, it must be that we're really good at making a wireframe image of vertical lines better than horizontal lines. Your eyeballs do that edge detecting. They send an edge map to your brain and then they fill in the colors. (laughs) (laughs) what yeah (laughs) excuse me what so it's not like our brain has a tv screen it's not at all like there is a a photo detector and a nerve that runs from that photo detector to a spot in your brain and the photo detector next to it runs to a spot right next to that one in the brain and it makes a map in your brain it's not like that at all that does not exist In fact, I think the wireframe and the color map are stored in different portions of the brain. What? No way. (laughs) That's like Just like memories and everything else. What we're detecting is broken up and scattered in a multidimensional space using multidimensional scaling and storage mechanisms. This is hyper... Our brains are not at all simple and they're not doing simple things with vision either. Now, happily, we don't remember a lot of what we see because you think of how much memory that would require. Hmm. But we do get snippets. I mean, you cannot think of an entire day when you were five years old. No. You can't remember that. No. But you might remember blowing out your birthday candles or stubbing your toe or running outside in the rain or you know getting licked by a puppy dog. But even those things are snippets, little bits and pieces. You can't even remember today. You cannot possibly (laughs) remember everything you've done on this day. Part of that is because you're seeing the same thing all day long. So your brain just stops paying attention. One thing why traveling is wonderful and why we can remember so much of when we travel is because it's the first time we see, smell, hear, and taste things. And it sticks with us better than the daily grind where you're seeing the same couch, the same computer. And you just don't remember that stuff. So brains are strange. We'll get the brains in another episode, I'm sure. Oh, All please right. do. So that's basically how the image processing in the eyeball works at an extremely simplistic level. And I just think those three things, that the chemistry, the geometry, and the image processing are so incredibly amazing. 
That is. But now I want to talk about data density. Take a falcon. Mm -hmm. They could see a bunny rabbit while flying a mile in the sky. Oh, yeah, good point. That is odd. You can't do that. No. You can't see something the size of a rabbit at a mile. How do they do that? Well, they have a massive fovea. We have a fovea where we have a very high concentration of, of cone cells, but it's, it's smaller. They have um, 1 million rods in their fovea. We have about 30,000. A huge proportion of their brains is taken up with image processing. A much smaller proportion of our brain is taken up with image processing. A million pixels. But they also have more than one fovea. They have a peripheral fovea. So they can see sharply on the edges of their vision and in the center of their vision, but it's like a bullseye, a ring of, of less sharp vision that they don't pay attention to, just like we don't pay attention to our peripheral vision so much. Hmm. But it's interesting, I have noticed in peripheral vision for humans, if someone walks up to me from the side or from behind me and starts passing me, just from a, an instant, you get a hunch of who that person is before you see the person. Yeah. And I think it's because our peripheral vision picks up the profile of that person and we can identify profiles. And I think we can do it really well and I don't think we noticed it. But something over years, like, oh, that was John. Wait a second. I knew it was him when he was standing next to me because of some, something in my peripheral vision. But it's not a fovea like a falcon has. They, they would see John clearly standing off to the side. But a million versus 30,000, that's how many cones they have in their fovea. But they also have what's called a, a flicker fusion rate. Just like us, I mean, okay, what is a standard cinematographic movie frame refresh rate? For 24 frames. Okay. What about 50 frames? Well, that's a little bit over double. Okay. And that is more common nowadays. There are cameras that do that. Okay. But if you had a light that was blinking at 10 blinks per second, would you see it blink? Yes. Just a white light. Okay, what about 25 frames per second? Would you see it blink? Uh, not really. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Well, I mean, you would notice that something was flickering. Yes. But it's not like you saw blackness in between them. You would still, yeah, you still see a flicker. Now, one reason- You detect that, that there is a change. Yes. One reason that movies don't do that is because the image is moving. So your eyeballs are still trying to catch up with the moving image and you don't notice it just went black for an instant. Yeah. Because there's a processing delay in our eyeballs. We don't see things in real time. We're, you know, half a millisecond behind. We're actually in a time warp, but okay, that's a long story. Um, so <laughs> the refresh rate for humans is somewhere around 50 hertz, 50 blinks per second before you, it just looks like one light. But for falcons, it's about 100. So not only do they have a whole lot more nerves focused on vision, but those nerves are refreshing at twice the rate that ours are. And they can see in the UV spectrum. Hmm. So they see more colors, faster, with a whole lot more detail. That is neat. Okay, so who has a superior eye, falcons or humans? Oh, we do. <laughs> Why do we? <laughs> because I, I like my eye more. <laughs> I care more about my eyesight. We have a generalist eye because we are generalist animals. Yeah, okay. It wouldn't do any good for us to have a, have a, a falcon eyeball. When doing this any good at all. It would be not designed for, we don't need to see things a mile away. We need to see things a hand length away, an arm length away. We are really good at what we do because humans aren't specialized for a certain task. So one of the evolutionary arguments they hear, oh, these eyes are better than human eyes. See that? If God designed a human eye, well, what, what, what do you mean if God designed a human eye? What would he have done? Are you in the mind of God? And what if he gave us eyes that are perfectly suited for the tasks that we're designed to do? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I get, I get a little angry at those sort of things. I hear it a lot. Oh, sure. So eyes in big cats are different than ours. Our fovias are more or less circular, but a big cat fovea is rectangular and horizontal. What about the little cats? Would they be I think the same thing. different? I think the same okay. thing. But I'm, I'm specifically, I know this in lions. Oh, nice. Think about a lion. He's crouching in the grass. His eyes are at grass level, and he's able to focus on a rectangle, not high in the sky, not below his nose, not super far left or super far right, but he's got like, a, like you know, when, in movies when they, a guy looks through a binocular, right? And what do you see? You see sort of like a figure eight shape of a binocular. You, you know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's dumb. That's not the way binoculars look, but that's what they always <laughs> depict it. It's sort of like a, like a widow's peak on the top and the bottom. It's like, right. just stop. But anyway. That, that's so you know they're looking through binoculars when they show that. Oh, he's looking through binoculars. Shorthand. 
Sorry, I'm trying not to be so bitter today and negative. I, 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 <laughs> That's okay. I had a lot of hobby horses this episode. I usually don't have this many hobby horses. You have such an awesome disposition. You just got to let loose because you just finished that big paper project. Oh, maybe that's it. Maybe just blown off steam because all that yeah. pent, up, pent up stress. <laughs> all right. So, a lion sees in a rectangle, which is exactly what he needs to hunt on the planes. Cool. How about octopuses? Octopus's eyes aren't wired backwards. Hmm. Does that mean that they're better than human eyes? <laughs> I, mean, think, I mean, come on, they're not wired backwards. Isn't that the big problem? Well, no, for a couple of reasons. First of all, they don't do much or any image processing in their retina. The nerve goes right to the brain. But they are able to detect polarized light hmm. because their, their, their photo detectors are long and skinny. And so only light that wiggles in one direction is detected by them, which means they've got a little more visual clarity underwater. All the scattered light bouncing around and, and scattering in the w- water as it comes down is filtered out. It's like they're wearing polarized sunglasses underwater. Cool. <laughs> yeah. But, let's say, okay, okay, no but here. Let me just describe the image density here and we'll compare it to a human. Uh-huh. They have 50,000 nerves or photodetectors per square millimeter. <sighs> That's about the same density of rods in a human fovea, but they have a wider one. And they have a four square centimeter retina which gives them 80 million pixels. They have an 80 megapixel camera oh, and it operates wow. at 60 hertz. Why do they need that? That's insane. That's, That's what we're talking about when we're talking. And this is overkill. Yeah. Organisms don't need that. And we know that because lots of organisms don't have that. Take a chambered nautilus. It's also a mollusk. It has an eyeball, but it has a pinhole eye, just like a pinhole camera. Because from a pinhole, you can project a clear image. You just can't change the focal distance. Or take the giant squid, another mollusk, the largest eyes on earth. Eyes in a giant squid are bigger than the eyes in a whale. Whoa. Take a clam, no eyes at all. Take a scallop. We used to go scalloping in, in Peconic Bay, not Peconic Bay, in um, Shinnecock Bay, uh, right, right where I lived. I lived on Shinnecock Bay. Before the brown tide algae came and choked out all the, uh, all the scallops, we used to go in the fall. We throw a, a dredge overboard and go through the grass beds. And we pull the dredge up, just basically a chain bag. It'd be full of scallops. And the scallops, when you look at them, they had these, these little um, fuzzy things when they opened up. They, they had like a beard on the inside. And the tip of each little hair was a little blue dot. I don't think it was an eyeball, but it was a light-sensitive spot. So when you waved your hand over them, they, they clap and close up. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, wait, wait a second now. Wait a minute. We got mollusks with the largest eyes on Earth, mollusks with little light detectors, and snails have eyeballs some of them. And then we have other mollusks with no eyes at all. And if you look at an evolutionary tree of life, you realize that eyes had to evolve independently hundreds of times. Mollusks, chordates, arthropods, these things, eyeballs pop up in random places on these trees. So this is a giant enigma for evolutionary theory. Why did eyeballs evolve? Why do they evolve along such similar lines using the same photochemicals, et cetera, et cetera? It is a massive problem for them, which I'm happy to talk about. Anyway, wow. that is my long soliloquy on eyeballs. I can't believe I talked that long. I thought this was going to be 20 minutes. Wow. Outlines. How did they work? <laughs> Why did we even make them? <laughs> <laughs> but it was really good because... I knew eyeballs are extremely fascinating. There's tons of variety. Like you said, they're much like computers. And, and, and there's too much to unpack about the brain than to talk about the, the eyes and the brain in one lump sum. We would never get through that in an hour. I actually think it'd be fun in general to cover all the senses. We could do a series of the various senses, and I wanted to start with the eyes. I'm glad you put it at the top of the list. As soon as I saw it, I said, oh, let's do that today. Good, good, Because I got to spend time studying this so I can present. Well, then, thank you, everybody, who's joined us on this quest. If you found this discussion very interesting, if you appreciate these insights, 
consider sharing it with a friend or a family member. And if you want to dig deeper into the topic, you can always look at the links to anything that Rob has in the show notes from our website. That's a nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 46. And the show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone. If you could do us a favor, if you happen to use Apple Podcasts and you can give us a good review, a five-star rating that really helps the show and helps more people discover it. And you should also check out Biblical Genetics. That's Rob's other project. And Biblical Genetics is also available on YouTube and MeWe, Facebook, where you can join in the uh, discussions in the comments. And if you want to find me, I'm at GCS Darnell on Twitter, or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. Goodbye, everybody. You've been listening to Equinox. Thank you.